Well, we are picking up on our uh, Through Them and For Them series where we are not looking at really the, the typical Christmas stories through the Advent season. We're looking at Jesus' genealogy because the genealogies recorded in, in Matthew and in Luke's Gospels were important to the first century readers who were trying to sort through, is this Jesus guy the Messiah that people say he is, or is he someone else? Just like for many islanders, who your father is, where you're from, is important in terms of your reputation, even more so as they were sorting through who is this Messiah. And we're looking at Matthew's genealogy and looking at different people throughout the genealogy at different points throughout it. Our first week, we looked at Tamar, who was uh, a woman who kind of took things into her own hands after she couldn't find kids, and her husband died, and she acted like a prostitute to get pregnant from her father-in-law and had a kid, and that whole situation. Last week, we looked at the, the story of Rahab, another prostitute, who uh, helped spies as they were coming out of the wilderness into the promised land to be able to conquer the city of Jericho. And in these stories, we see these like weird circumstances, these moments that you wouldn't think would be part of God's plan, but God redeems some of the lowest moments in our lives for ways he wants to use them for his purpose. We saw Rahab's story, her, her response to hearing about the God of Israel led her to be freed from the destruction of Jericho when it came about. So we're going to pick up in Matthew's genealogy and read through uh, to the point of the individual and the story that we're going to be looking at today. So this is Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Keeps going to say Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. We're going to look at the story of Ruth this morning. Like I mentioned, we've been focusing a lot on the women in the genealogy because they don't need to be there. Like Matthew, when he's writing his genealogy, it's traced through the lineage of the men, right? To often the firstborn son. So any time that the woman, the, the mother of the child is included, it's there to highlight something. It's there. It doesn't need to be there. And Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, as he's writing out this gospel for some reason, includes the names of these mothers. So as we've been looking at Tamar and Rahab this morning, we're going to look at the story of Ruth and Boaz. We're going to ask why it's mentioned in the genealogy and what we can learn from Ruth's inclusion in the genealogy of Jesus. So to kind of set the scene, we need to go back, right? We've been looking at God's promise to Abraham in Genesis and how that promised line was important and the sons being born through that line, which led Tamar to act the way that she did. 
And the people of God were in slavery in Egypt, and God brought them out. He promised them this land of Canaan. They wandered in the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience. Finally, they entered the promised land and take over Jericho, like we read last week with Rahab. Eventually, Joshua and the Israelites mostly conquer the promised land. They, they take over the lands, and they divide the land up among the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, 12-ish tribes, so that each geographical region is kind of given to people, the descendants of this part of the family. And this land was to stay in their family, and the land was, was part of their inheritance. It's important to be able to live off the land in this agrarian society where the land is part of God's promise to you and the descendants. And the land becomes important. And during this era of the people of Israel, they didn't have kings, but they were ruled over by chieftains called judges. And the book of Judges highlights several of these judges as uh, this era of Israel's history came about. We see that this isn't, this isn't a high point in the story of God's people. We see this constant cycle as they're being led by the judges, as they're in the promised land, and sometimes being shaped more by the cultures around them than by how God has asked them to live. In fact, in the new year, we're going to be doing a, a, a series through the book of Judges, and we'll look much more in depth at that time in their history. But the book of Ruth, and this story, it zooms in on the life of one family in particular, a family from Bethlehem, interestingly enough, as we're talking about Christmas time. A family from Bethlehem and a, a man named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. Now, they're from Bethlehem. They had two sons. But what happened is there was a famine in the land, which is ironic because Bethlehem means the house of bread. It's supposed to be a place of plenty where there would be abundance, where the, the, the fields and the region around them should be able to provide for the people, but ironically, there's famine. And so Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, they move to the land of Moab. Now Moab was not part of the promised land. Moab was not under the kind of areas of, of God's people. It was under the rule of the Moabites. And it was interesting because God's people were not supposed to venture and live among the people in Moab. But what happens is because of their situation, they make this decision, this difficult decision for their family. We need to move to where the food is or we're going to starve. So they move to Moab. And as the two sons grow up, they marry Moabite women. One son marries a, a woman named Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah. And the other woman that uh, one of the sons marries is named Ruth. You'll be able to tell which one's important in the story. But as time goes on, both of the sons die. And Elimelech dies, leaving three widows. Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth to fend for themselves. And this is in a time and a place in history where, like, if you are a widow, you are vulnerable. Like, you do not have the means to provide for yourself financially. You no longer have the man who has the title and the claim to the ancestral land that was allotted to you when you came into the promised land. It was a time where 
you were vulnerable, you don't know what your future holds. And so Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, she says, listen, you guys should probably go back to your families. Go back to your parents if they're still living or the, the families of your brothers and live among them and let them provide for you. That's what Orpah does. But Ruth responds differently. I want to highlight what Ruth says. This is Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and onward. We, we, we read, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you say, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now this is, this is some strong language. This is where Chris Tomlin gets some of his greatest hits. We'll sing it later, don't worry. But we see this stark contrast of these two daughter-in-laws of, of Naomi. One who says, yeah, I'm just going to go back to my family. And, and Ruth, who resolves quite strongly, like, no, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to live with you wherever you live. I'm going to make sure that you're okay, and your God is going to be my God. Let's not separate over this. Naomi decides, I'm going to go back to my family's homeland of Bethlehem and trust that God is going to care for us there. What I love about seeing Ruth in this moment is she has this very much like all-in attitude. This attitude of like, I'm part of this family, and if I'm going to be in the family, I'm going to be all-in. If I'm going to be with you, Naomi, I'm going to be with you to the end. Even when things get tough, I'm going to stick it out and I'm going to trust that this God that you keep talking about is going to be a God that provides for widows as we, we look at whatever the future holds. I think you and I, as we kind of read this, we, we can learn from some of Naomi's or some of Ruth's resolve here. Because I don't know about you, you, but for me, growing up in church, having like a familiarity of like the language and the routines and like church Christian-y life. Sometimes it can be like, yes, I'm in, but like, I'm not like all the way in. I, I know what to do. I know the language to say. I know when to come to church. But, but if you ask me, and if I'm honest with myself, I'm not really all in. I've been dipping my toes in the water for 15 years. I know the water's fine, but I have yet to dive in. Maybe for us, it's, it's out of this deep fear somewhere deep down that maybe all of this isn't true. And I don't actually want to hinge my life on this crucified and risen Messiah in case sometime down the road it comes out that, that all of it is bunk. Maybe it's this fear that, that what if this God that I'm saying I'm going all in with isn't actually going to come through for me when I need Him. Or maybe it's this, this fear of what is it actually going to mean for me to, to give up or to reorient my life around this Savior if I'm going to be all in. 
I think we need to learn from, from Ruth here. Who's willing to say, I don't know what the future holds, but if I'm in, I'm going to be all in. I'm going to go with you where you go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I had coffee with a, a couple last week, newer to faith, just still kind of exploring and trying to understand who Jesus is. And as I'm talking to them, there's this point in the conversation where they're like, well, if we're going to do this, like we're going to go all in. Like if, if Jesus is who he says he is, then like, let's dive in, let's, let's do it all. Like let's, let's be about this with our lives. And I'm like, yes, you get it. Like that's, that's the Ruth story right there playing out in someone's life across the table from me. It, it reminds me of a quote that, that was popularized by an uh, uh, evangelist named D.L. Moody in the 1800s, who said that the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Imagine how the lives of those around us would be affected if we actually were all in. We see Ruth's faith. We see it, it, it start to flourish. We see her trust build. We see her deciding to go with Naomi back to Bethlehem. But what's beautiful in this is we see, we see God at work. If we keep reading in, in Ruth chapter 1 down in verse 22, we see these hints. These hints that God is, is working and is going to provide and is going to come through for these women who are going all in. In verse 22 it says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the first in like a sequence of just these strange coincidences that we read in the book of Ruth. There's nothing in the book of Ruth that says, and God did this, and God did this, and God provided, and God was here doing this. There's no, like the narrative, the narrator who's writing this doesn't write like that. But the way that the story is told is with all these weird coincidences. Coincidences that are are meant to draw us to asking, who is this God, the sovereign king of the universe, who is caring for these widows? The one who holds all things together, who knows what Ruth and Naomi need, who sees them as the poor and the powerless, who sees the widow and the orphan, and is going to come through. The first example, they arrive in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And so Ruth, in kind of her energetic, all-in attitude, she says, okay, I'm going to go into the fields and I'm going to start gleaning some of the grain. Now, this was part of the law that, that Israel received from God, that God said, when you're harvesting your field, don't harvest all the way around it. Leave some of the edges, leave anything that falls behind, don't go back and pick it up, leave it there for the widows and the orphans, those who are in need, to be able to come by and to collect grain from your field to, to get the leftovers. This is, this is God working it into the, the structures of their society, a way of caring for people like Ruth and Naomi. 
And so Ruth goes gleaning in this field, and we read in the text this other coincidence here where it says, it just so happened that the field that she decides to go and glean at was owned by a man named Boaz. And as Ruth is gleaning the field, she's collecting grain, she's, she's trying to help her and her mother-in-law survive, Boaz notices her. And he says to his workers, he says, listen, leave her alone. Don't harass her. Don't give her a hard time. Make sure she's safe in the field as a vulnerable woman, a widow, all alone by herself. And eventually he approaches her. He comes up and he speaks to her. And and I'm going to pick up in in what the passage says here in Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting along, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you noticed me a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have a standing as one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain, and she ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Let her gather along the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundle and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. That is uh, about 30 pounds or 13 kilograms. Footnote. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought with her what she had left over when she had eaten enough. And her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Lord, bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she said. That man is our closest relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. We'll stop there for a minute. A guardian redeemer. This is a concept that, that Naomi brings up when Ruth tells about, uh, about gleaning in Boaz's fields. And this was another thing written into the laws of Israel where these ancestral lands that were divided up among families in the promised land, 
Like that was their livelihood, right? This was important to them. That is how they received what they needed to survive. The problem is, in Naomi and Ruth's situation, Elimelech, who had held the title of the land, when the famine came, likely sold his land to someone so he could move to Moab and to find food. Because his, his land wasn't producing crops in the famine. The problem is, as the women come back, now the land that was historically held in Elimelech's name is, is owned by someone else. But the laws of Israel were written in such a way that the ancestral land could be redeemed to be back in the family by a close relative should the one who, uh, who had the title to the land die. And so it would be the job of the guardian redeemer, a close relative of the one who passed away, to claim the title to the land so that the descendants of Elimelech could use that land to survive moving forward for generations. It's not the same kind of private property sale that we experience in modern North America. It's very different where the historic ownership of the land was important. It was also part of the role of the guardian redeemer if there was no one to produce an heir for the one who held the title of the land to step in to marry the widow and to get her pregnant so that she could bear an heir who would then hold the title moving forward. Remember the story of Tamar a couple weeks ago. She didn't have kids with any of her husbands who died. But it was the job of the, the brother of the deceased husband to give her a child, to get her pregnant, marry her, so that the, the first husband would have an heir. It was the same thing with the, the guardian redeemer. If the widow didn't have an heir for the, the previous husband who held the title of the land, it was the job of the guardian redeemer to marry her and provide that. Understanding this part of the story was significant for both Naomi and Ruth of realizing this man who's kind to you is essentially the one who is the key to our provision moving forward. That, that maybe God is going to provide for us through this situation. That it just so happened that you were gleaning in his field. It just so happened that he took notice of you and was incredibly over-the-top kind because of how you treated your mother-in-law. And so Naomi hatches a plan. It's kind of a sketchy plan. And as I grew up reading this story, I think I was always told, like, don't worry, it's not weird what they do. It is weird. It is weird. And it always has been weird, and we're meant to read it and say, this is weird. If you're not familiar with it, Naomi tells Ruth, listen, go take a bath, put on some perfume, Stop wearing widow's clothes and just, just put on like regular people clothes. I want you to sneak into Boaz's field in the middle of the night where he's going to be out there alone threshing wheat. And after he goes and lays down where he would sleep in the field, it's harvest time and the men are in the field and it's busy. I want you to sneak in there, take off the lower part of his clothes and cuddle up to him. See what happens. Genuinely, in like modern terms, that's, that's what she says. See what happens. 
Her plan is like filled with so much innuendo. It's, it's ridiculous. Nowhere does it say, like, I want you to seduce him and sleep with him. But it's like, it's getting there. We're meant to read this. And the, the readers of the story originally, like, there'd be all kinds of red flags. Like, is this another prostitute story? Like, we just keep talking about prostitutes week after week after week. And that was a common way for prostitutes to approach men who were working out in the fields alone. Like, the prostitutes would go to the threshing floor in the middle of the night because these guys are they're not sleeping at home with their wives. They're out in the field. Also, the fact that Ruth is a Moabite would, would make readers read this and be like, so she's a woman from, like, kind of sketchy origins where the Moabites originally came from two daughters who got their dad drunk so that they could get pregnant. The Bible, right? Is this a repeat of that kind of a story? But when Ruth goes and follows through with Naomi's plan, we see a difference. We don't see that Boaz is, is drunk, like the, uh, the story of the origin of the Moabites. We don't see him as seeing Ruth come and him taking advantage of her. What we see him is, is actually acting as a man of integrity. And, and this is kind of like flipping the expectations on the head. Where you're expecting, like, this woman's coming to you in the middle of the night and she's taking off your clothes. Like, what's going to happen? Instead, he doesn't treat her as someone to be taken advantage of, but he, again, treats her as someone with dignity. Maybe it is the fact that Boaz's mom was Rahab the prostitute from Jericho. And he has a view of, of women who had, have a reputation for, for that kind of lifestyle in a different way that other men in Israel might. Maybe this is just another one of those divine coincidences of God working in this story where Boaz shows a restraint and a level of integrity here in this moment that is unexpected given the situation of the story. But we see a son of a prostitute who is now a wealthy landowner treat this woman who is approaching him like a prostitute, not as someone who he can use, but someone that he can help provide for. Someone he might be the caretaker for. And he says to Ruth, he's like, I, I realize the relationship here. I realize that I might be able to serve as the guardian redeemer, but as a man of integrity, he says, there's actually a relative who's closer. And so he's like, you know, we could probably consummate this whole thing here, but there's someone else who essentially has, has more legal right than I to be part of this. So he says, tomorrow I'll go talk with him and we'll sort it out. So probably nothing happened that night. But the next day, Boaz goes to the, the town gate in, in Bethlehem, and he sees the relative who's closely related to Naomi and Ruth, closer than he even is. He says, listen, Elimelech's passed away, his widow's here, there's land that you can redeem. And the guy says, oh, that sounds great. A bunch of land that now can be brought into my family. But then Boaz says, yeah, but there's also a widow that 
it would require for you to marry her and to provide her with a son, and he would inherit the land. And all of a sudden, it doesn't sound like a great deal for the other relative. He says, mm, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want the complexities, the strings attached. I don't want to have to sort through what gets inherited by maybe sons from another marriage that I have and what gets inherited by this son. And so he says, I'm going to pass up the opportunity. Boaz, you can serve as the redeemer. And so that's what happens. Boaz marries Ruth. They redeem the land of Elimelech. They have a child together. The child is named Obed. And Obed is the rightful heir of Elimelech who would inherit the land. Obed eventually grows up and has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has several sons, the youngest of which becomes King David. We see this Moabite woman with a a heart to care for her mother-in-law. With a faith to say, I'm all in with this God that you keep talking about who experiences the work of God in her life, and now God uses her and brings her in so that she becomes the mother of kings. The question for us as we read Ruth's story is kind of like how God is working things together is is can we identify where God is working in our life? We might not have like these narrator narrator moments where it's like, and the Lord did this in Tyler's life. We kind of like the Ruth story are are seeing maybe these moments of coincidence that we have to discern and identify together. This I think this is God working in my life. Like in the the coffee conversation I had with the couple who said we want to be all in. For them, it was like story after story of these strange coincidences of God working in their life. And I wonder about you, if you reflect, can you say, man, I think this is is God showing up in these different places, in ways where he's provided, in ways where even in the midst of, of seasons of suffering and hardship, I've seen him there with me. Ways where the coincidences are just too perfect to to say it's luck. St. Ignatius of Loyola, he he had this practice he called the examine, where at the end of the day, he invited uh, his his followers to, to do this prayer exercise where they would invite the Spirit to help them to reflect on the day to be able to see how God has been at work in their day. I think that's actually a helpful practice for you and I as as followers of Jesus seeking to see the work of God in our lives that at the end of the day we might pray through with the Spirit our day and say, man, God, you've been at work. You've showed up in these moments. God is going to be at work. The, The question is, are we aware of it? And are we going to join in in the places where he's working? What I love about this story of, of Boaz and Ruth is we see Boaz taking this initiative of, wow, something's going on with this widow and her mother-in-law. I'm going to, I'm going to help out. I'm going to be part of this story. And I think if we want to see where God is working and where we can join in, like Boaz, we should look at the margins. 
Look at those who would be, quote-unquote, gleaning in, in our society and in our day. Maybe it's in developing these structures into our lives, kind of like how Boaz already set up these gleaning practices, where we would say, I'm going to be regularly involving myself in the lives of those who would be on the margins. Maybe it's like, I, I'm, I'm going to be a regular person helping out the food bank, so that I'm, I'm making myself available for opportunities where God is working, where I can join in. Maybe it's in your, your connection with, with the Kits of Kindness ministry. Maybe it's, it's having a posture of, I'm always ready to have a guest into my home. Where can we prepare ourselves to be able to join God in the things that he's doing? To step in. Even when it might cost us something. Even when we might be tempted like the closer relative who says, ah, it... It may not be as great of a deal for me. I think the greater payoff is to be part of what God is wanting to do. The thing is, is we have a God who came for us. A, a God who gave himself, who, who paid the ultimate price, who sacrificed his life on the cross to redeem us. He came for us, but I'm going to flip our kind of quirky series title on its head, but he's probably also wanting to work through us. That we might be able to join him in the ways where he's working, in the lives of those on the margin or those in, in our lives that, that we wouldn't expect. But maybe we would have the awareness and the eyes to see that God is up to something and that he's inviting us to be part of it. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are an active God. A God who is working even in the times where we don't necessarily uh, are aware. In, in the situations that we wouldn't right off the bat say, oh, this is a God thing. But actually you are, you are a God who's present and are working. God, I thank you for how you redeem stories, how you care for the widow and the orphan. And my prayer, God, is that you might care for them through us and see how we might join in and be part of what it is you want to do. May we be all in. May we say, where you go, I'll go. May we say, may this God be my God. And may we find your presence and provision, your work in our lives through that. In Jesus' name, amen.